everybody. Welcome to episode 228. Today is June the 11th, 2021. It's three o'clock in the afternoon here on the West Coast. Today I'm with Victoria Wick. She is a TV shopping celebrity and she built a $500 million business literally from scratch. Victoria is the ultimate rags to riches story. She immigrated with her family from South Korea to the United States with only $30 in her pocket. And since then, she's built a multi-million dollar business with over $500 million in retail sales. Victoria has um, been on the home shopping networks for over two decades. She started with uh, Shop HQ. And she's been on HSN for about two decades already. And uh, this is a great conversation. I love picking the brains of people with this kind of a rags to riches experience. Victoria and I talk all about her fascinating personal story. And of course, we talk about how you can build a multi-million dollar business starting with no money and how you can get your products on to the home, uh, the TV shopping networks. So let's welcome Victoria Wick to the show right after this. Welcome to the Newtown Big Dreams podcast, an interview style talk show that's your gateway to the fabulous and fascinating people who relocated to start a new life. Whether you're new to our podcast or your city, our fellow neighbors from across Canada, North America, and the entire English-speaking world share their stories of reaching new horizons and big dreams. So sit back and relax as we navigate in-depth and intimate conversations with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, executives, creatives, and anyone who can share their story about their new town, Big Dreams. And now, here's your host, Luke J. Menkes. So, Victoria, it's great to see you today. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so glad to be here. Um, now that we're Zooming, uh, I'm here in sun, sunny San Diego, so everything looks beautiful, and I'm glad to be a part of your show. Thank you. So, you told me you spent about half your time in San Diego. Yeah. Have you lived there or spent time there for a long time? It's a long story, but um, I immigrated here from South Korea uh, back in 1971, and then from there to mm -hmm. Los Angeles. I lived there for most of my life, and I still live there part of the time. And um, in 2004, we moved here because my mother-in-law kind of uh, broke her hip and all that, so we wanted to be here mm -hmm. with her, and she's still with us. Um, so I spend my time between my mother, my mother-in-law, and my other businesses. So it's San Diego, L.A., Las Vegas. So I got the whole West Coast covered. <laughs> I see. And um, tell us what the situation is with the COVID lockdowns, mask mandates and stuff in San Diego. I'm very confused about that because, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're getting new information. I think it's right now, it looks like two weeks from now, everything's going to be open up, opened up, okay. but it will be very much up to uh, private establishments. Um, so I you may have right now, it's a situation where I could go to one store and they would require you to wear a mask. And then I would go to another store, they would actually require you to take it off. Okay. So you kind of have to have it ready the whole time. So this is California. So things are, you know, we're like a whole other country within the United States even. Right, right. So um, 
you've got some interesting concepts building a multi uh, million dollar business with over five hundred million dollars in retail sales. But when you move moved to the United States, you only had thirty dollars. Right. So tell us this short version of how you got to from thirty dollars to five hundred million in sales. Yeah. So basically, uh, my parents immigrated here because they felt that America the they had four girls and Korea at mm. the time we left was not very kind to uh, young girls. <laughs> okay. They preferred boys and um, culturally they preferred boys and there were a lot of social um, uh, expectations of girls growing up to, you know, pretty much be a mom and stay at home and, um, you know, major in things like home economics, piano and art. So um, my parents uh, brought their four girls uh, here. And my brother was born long after they applied for visa. And um, we came here and then our, all of our money got frozen by both countries um, due wow. to all the political tensions going on at that time. So mm. my parents found themselves with 30 bucks with seven, you know, se- family of seven. So mm. needless to say, it was very, very hard the first few years, I would say. Um, you know, first couple of years were really tough. First couple of months were just unbearable. But, you know, we never um, could give up that hope of the American dream because, you know, when we looked around, there were still people, you know, that uh, achieved the impossible and were living the impossible, you know, in their own mm-hmm. versions of it. So yeah. we didn't give give that up. Um, and I think, you know, I was told that the fastest path, the quickest path to economic freedom was to get an education and to climb the corporate ladder. So I did that. You know, I actually studied English um, and went to college. I was very proud that I, I did get accepted at UCLA and um, got my degrees got my job and um, I was a good student and I was a very good employee. So I just kept getting, you know, promotions and, you know, my life seemed to be pretty good on the outside, but I was uh, emotionally suffocating for one thing because I'm a creative person, you know, trapped in a financial corporate world. And then the other thing was um, as a kid, I was the oldest of the five. As a kid, I remember what it felt like as a child to be left behind every day because my parents had uh, four jobs between the two of them. So I, I rarely saw them. So I was acting like the, the mother to all my siblings. So when I was making money, I felt like, oh my God, finally I have my dream job and all that only to find out that I'm going to be doing the same thing to my kids which is to leave them with the nanny, you know, I mean, I would leave them with the nanny and not just abandon, you know, have them take care of themselves. But, um, and, you know, it just didn't sit right with me. So I pretty much, um, you know, like uh, took a leap of faith and started my own company with the idea that I was only going to, you know, my dream at that time was to make $3,000 a month working the hours on my terms. So I was willing okay. to take a pay cut to be able to have that dream life. Mm-hmm. And all, you know, and I focused on that throughout my whole career. I never, I was present in my kids' lives for everything, you know, their first, you know, first steps, first piano recital, you know, first everything. Mm -hmm. So the money, uh, the $500 million in sales came really as a byproduct. I mean, I didn't Mm -hmm. chase that money. It just came, you know, so. Okay. Well, um, how can we find out if we might be sitting on a million dollar hobby? Well, you're all sitting on a million dollar hobby. Is don't right? you know? Yeah. I, I think <laughs> that every single hobby is worth at least a million dollars, if not 500. 
Um, I'm the only thing I'll tell you is that you know what I did was I I'm a jewelry designer, okay. and at the time um, I started my company, and I'm sure this is very familiar to you right now and to all the listeners out there. That at the time I started my company, which was back in 1989, it was during a financial meltdown. And um, I felt like the American dream was getting farther and farther away. So a lot of my friends who got, who did all the right things, you know, who went to school, worked their jobs in high school, college, all that. And they get their jobs, they, they get promoted and yet they're working 15 hour days. They're commuting an hour each way and inflation was there. So, you know, things were you know, so it looks like the harder you work, the farther you are away from things. Yeah. Uh, I hear that a lot today from people. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that when I started, everyone told me, okay, you're absolutely crazy because um, designers don't make any money. They work in sweatshops. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you just live this very idealistic, dreamy world. I mean, the world has moved on. You know, people have nannies that are great, you know, all this stuff. And... um I, you know, I still had to focus on what I wanted and what I wanted was to be present. And I felt that I could do, you know, I felt like, okay, if I'm, if I'm working 15 hour days, you better like what you're doing. Otherwise it's going to be a really long day, you know? So as long as I'm doing what I'm, what I love to do, I'm going to be better at it and I'm Mm going to resent it less. So it was lesser of like all the evils. So I, you know, and the thing is, like, I just wanted to make the three grand. And so the question came down to what can I, what can I do to make the three grand a month? Mm-hmm. And um, in 89, if you remember, many of you might remember, a lot of the listeners of podcast are younger than us, so we can't, they may not remember. But in 89, um, we didn't have internet. We did not have uh, personal computers. You know, the IBM PS1s were f- just coming to the market and, you know, they were doing like 286 meg, uh, megahertz or something. It was just so slow, yeah. you know? Right. And um, so we, you know, the thing I'm, um, I had to like learn how to do direct mail. I had to mm-hmm. go find, um, I went down to, since I'm selling jewelry, I figured people who can travel, you know, who are in the luxury world were more likely to buy it. So I went yeah. to the travel agencies and I got their like books of all the hotels and, you know, like they have all the directories of every hotel. So I started locally, like, you know, people that were nearby me and I would write to the gift shops and, you know, sometimes I would even write to the airlines, um, their duty-free gift shop um, airlines people. So I did it and I looked at those numbers and they were saying that at that time, your direct response rate is about five to 10%. Mm-hmm. And that also tells you something because today it's pretty exact, but at that time it was like five to ten percent, depending on the quality and who you're, you know, contacting. And then from that, there was a conversion rate. So mm-hmm. I thought, you know, if I wrote fifty letters a day, um, and I got the conversion rates, so yeah. uh, you know, the number was doable. But the fifty letters were mostly form letters, but you know, their names and addresses obviously they were slightly curated, so I didn't have yeah. to rethink the letters all the time. First class mail, I, I was able to mail it at first class mail because mm-hmm. I'm sending letters and I took, so I didn't have money. So I, I want you to listen to me here. Yeah. When you have no money, because this is the question I get a lot from, you know, when I give speeches, people will come up to me and say, well, when you have no money, how do you actually make samples? How do you get things started? So I had no money. And even if you have money right now, I wouldn't, I would tell you not to risk it because there's no reason to. So okay. what I did was instead of making samples, because samples cost a lot of money, 
jewelry samples, like uh, jewelry, like a new mold is usually about $300 to $1,000, depending on the complexity of it. And that's just one style. Okay. If you have 20 styles, you can see how many dollars you're going to accumulate before you sold a single piece, before you found out that anybody wants anything from you. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't going to go down that path. So what I did was I sketched them out really nice and neat in like a lookbook. And um, I went to my local department stores and I would ask the local department store, like assistant manager of the jewelry department and mm-hmm. asked her, like, if you had something that looks like this, would you be able to sell it? And, um, you know, how, how often would you be able to sell and, and how much would you get for it? So mm-hmm. I got a, like a very rough um sort of a rough unscientific survey. Um, and mm-hmm. I went to, I was lucky because in LA, uh, I went to Rodeo Drive. So there's Rodeo and Wilshire. There's two iconic stores, Neiman Marcus and Saks Fifth Avenue. And I hit both stores. And you know, this is the most interesting thing. I told them, I mean, I was such a young, naive person. Like I wasn't even culturally all adapted to America. So I would just tell people, look, you know, I'm I'm trying to start a company. I have no money, so I don't have any, you know, samples to show you. But, you know, before I make the samples, if I brought these types of things, I'm trying to figure out which ones to make samples with. Yeah. Um, could you're you help me? You're describing. You're describing. Well, I'm showing them the, in a picture. Like, oh, you know, pictures. Yeah, okay. I've, I've, I've done draw the drawing. Yeah, I do the drawing. Okay. Yeah, do you, yeah. you know, it's amazing. Uh, the Neiman Marcus assistant buyer told me that, you know, because remember, they're like right in Hollywoodville. Yeah. She said, you know, most of our customers, um, you know, high end customers are stylists for movie stars or movie stars themselves or studios. And, you know, mm-hmm. the last thing they want is something that's already in the case that the masses buy. So yeah. they love having, you know, choosing things from the lookbook. So I said, well, how do I, you know, everything sounded Greek to me. I had no clue what she was talking about. But she, mm-hmm. I said, how do I go about doing that? And she said, you know, uh, if, you can, if you can leave the lookbook, I'll just make some phone calls. Right. So I said, okay, well, you know, I can always draw new ones. So, you know, I left it there and lo and behold, she just, you know, she said, oh my God, you know, we can sell tons of this. And she gave me all these stuff that she, so basically she actually sold the first few pieces for me without a sample. Okay. Without pricing or anything. I went across the street, did the same thing, but I knew even back then that that little bubble of, you know, the, the rich and the famous and the wealthy, that was not going to be my complete market. So mm-hmm. I then, you know, um, expanded my lookbook and then I went to all the, the other department stores in 40 mile radius. There was, there were quite a few of them. There's like a hundred of them. So mm-hmm. I went to all of them and I got a pretty good, um, look at what the masses would buy. And I, and I was able to narrow it down to like eight styles. So here you have a hobby, you know, you want to do jewelry design. And I had some time, I was able to sketch them out and I was able to get, do market research and get pre-sales before you did anything. And this was before the internet. Today, if I, with the benefit of the internet, I could have gotten, I mean, I could have started a whole, whole business by that point. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about like, so, so the point I'm making now here about my business is that, believe me, jewelry business is the most competitive, the most unnecessary and the most expensive hobby that anyone can have for somebody who doesn't have any money. Mm-hmm. And yet I have somehow managed to make a business out of it. Not only that, I mean, I've done a pretty impressive number. I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm like the best person in the world, but, you know, in terms of that, but $500 million is nothing to sneeze at. Right. So, it's huge. 
So I would say, I would encourage you, if you have a hobby, you know, you're a photographer, you're a chef, whatever you want to be, you can take that and you can yeah. make the million dollars within the first two, three years. That, that I have amazing. no doubt on my mind. That's an amazing story. And I want to know a little bit more. So I understand you went with the lookbook mm-hmm. and you were asking questions and getting feedback and what, tell us how it started. Like, did uh, somebody say, oh, give me 10 of those or give me five of those? Like, how did you the, go from zero to... Yeah, so yeah. the 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 one-of-a-kind, so that in Neiman Marcus, you know, all these stores, it was mostly like when the person wanted the one, that was the one. Like, mm. they, they wanted one. But she also allowed me to do trunk shows at the, in the store, which... Um, oh. I'd highly recommend that you do that because you get a really good read from people. You know, you get direct interaction as opposed to through Mm. her. And I did some of that. But the other thing I did do, though, is I knew the money could come in and that money was coming in. So the first piece you sell, you know, in that market, I was able to make enough money to make samples. Um, The first bit of samples actually didn't end up costing me a whole lot of money because um, you can. And this is something I actually I'm not going to get into really deeply, but. When a manufacturer believes that you can sell, you know, 100, 200, 300, 1,000 pieces or something, they're very happy to work with you on the initial mold cost because the mold costing for them isn't anything. They're already paying the mold maker. They're already paying Mm. the rent. They're already doing that. So their cost is zero. They're charging you something Mm. for the time. So what happened was I did the eight styles and then, you know, I did some trunk shows where I got feedback from actual customers and I was able to take pre-orders there. But um, the next thing I did, and this is something, uh, it's a kind of like a business lesson for those of you who are listening right now. Instead of taking those samples and going to New York, which is where 80% of my larger customers were, if you think about department store buyers, you know, anybody other than Neiman's was all, you know, Saks, Bloomingdale's, Macy's, they were all in New York. So instead of going to New York, um, I went to Dallas, which is a much smaller market than even Los Angeles, because I knew that I was, you know, there was too many variables between me, my sketches, and from my sketches, the mold maker, and then from the mold maker to the production, and production mm-hmm. to shipping to customs, um, you know, duty people to quality control, and then going out to the customer at the end. There were just too many people involved in the process and I wasn't yeah. used to it. So any one of those things that, you know, that break or there's a, there's a tension in that system is going to end up in a customer experience that's not desirable. So right. I figured that if I'm going to make any mistakes, I better not make a mistake where everybody, I mean, literally Saks Fifth Avenue, uh, Bloomingdale's, Macy's, their buying offices are within six blocks of each other. They're going to all know that I, I, I was a screw up. So, you know, I wanted to make the mistakes and kind of learn the ropes in a smaller market, but big enough where, you know, if the upside is there, you can still make some money. Um, and still build a really loyal customer base. So I went mm-hmm. to Dallas and I went to, instead of hitting like a, at that time, Dallas had a JC Penney's. There was a bunch of, um, Dillard's is another one that's in there, but I didn't hit those big ones. I went to the little, like, um, the market, like a wholesale mart. And then I got a bunch of okay. wholesalers and I got, you know, orders for like $500, $800, uh, $2,000 orders. And, uh, Sure enough, when the orders actually came in, there were issues with quality, like um, because the designs were really new, 
you know, these manufacturers haven't had a chance to really kind of innovate their technology. I mean, jewelry is a very old industry. So, you know, hinges didn't fit, clasps didn't work, uh, whatever. So we fixed all this stuff. I worked with them. And then when I went to New York, um, I got like a large order. The first one, I think, was $56,000. And back in 1990, it was a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money today. Yeah. So, um, so I guess, you know, if you don't have money, you have these ideas, you have some time, those principles can st- still stay the same, meaning that you're taking very little risks and you can market test, then you can expand. Yeah. Were those um, mistakes, those initial mistakes, was that very stressful for you at that time? Oh, yes. <laughs> very, very, <laughs> very stressful. Um, the other thing I uh, will tell you is, and this is another one that uh, if you're starting a business and you are starting to make this into a physical product, uh, something that you need to watch out for is that my designs, you know, the first five manufacturers I contacted, um, three of them refused me and said that, you know, um, I had to pay you know, some exorbitant amount of money for them too. So they were going to make all the money up front, you know, like a couple thousand mm-hmm. bucks per sample. Um, mm-hmm. And they wanted me to pay that in advance, which was not an option for me. Mm-hmm. The second a couple of guys, um, one of them asked, you know, both of them asked me, how many can you sell? Because our cost price to you is going to uh, differ, you know, depending on how many you can sell. Obviously, if you can sell 10,000 pieces and you order it from us, then, you know, the mold costs are very low. Yeah. Um, my answer was, I don't know. I mean, how could I predict the future? Um, you know, there could be an earthquake in Los Angeles or it could be maybe your samples won't come out right. Um, maybe it won't work. You know, maybe it'll be too expensive. I mean, or I could sell 10,000 pieces. But, the, you know, if I told you I'm confident I can sell X amount, that would just be an educated guess, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I don't, my, my true answer is I don't know. Right. So, but they knew I didn't have a whole lot of money. So what happened was these guys never sent me my samples. So after I reached five different um, manufacturers, and so I, the first three refused, the other two sort of said they will do it, but they, you know, for X price, but they, I never got samples. So I figured, you know, and now I'm sitting on a bunch of orders, from all the trunk shows and everything. And I have nobody to make it for. So I went to a trade show to look for new vendors. And what I found was that I found my samples were all over the trade show. So these really? guys didn't sell it to me, but they sent it to all many other people who are competing you know, in the same marketplace oh. because they could place the orders right away, you know? Oh. Um, wow. So, and that's not really... Uh, I, I'm not sure if, if it's really legal or not. Um, I didn't have copyright protections or anything like that, but it's absolutely morally not correct. Yeah, um, that must have been devastating to, yeah. to walk in there and to see yeah. all your work. Yeah, it was it was heartbreaking and devastating. And then I was wondering, like, what kind of a industry am I in? You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I mean, these are traps that I. I I walked into uh, pretty early on. I mean, since mm-hmm. then, I've copyrighted like 15,000 different styles. Uh, you know, that's the mm-hmm. first thing I learned how to do. And the second thing I learned how to do is design them in uh, modules so that like when I uh, design, you know, my pieces are usually designed in different sections so that not any one person has all of them because it's not even okay. just the owners, but it could be their employees, you know. So, um, you know, the wax mold is very easy to make an extra copy of and, you know, things come out. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, but even within, even with the mistakes I've made early on when you don't have any money and they were completely bankrupted you, mm-hmm. um, you can still recover from all that. And, you know, I guess I'm just sitting here just asking everyone to rethink your American dream. You know, mm-hmm. um, when you say the, you know, how do I start a hobby? How do I do this? You know, if you're really passionate about something, you're going to stick to it. You're going to be persistent and you're going to be better than anybody in, in that place. And if there's one thing that you think needs improvement, you know, if you're a gardener and you think that, geez, like, you know, is there a pad I can sit on that's not going to be wet and dirty and not heavy and, you know, because um, you're sitting on dirt that makes it easier. If, it, if that product doesn't exist and you're an avid gardener, you're going to find a way to do it. Yeah. If, you know, if you're a chef, I mean, I got a great friend, um, his name is Daniel Green. Um, in fact, you, you probably should interview him. Okay. You know, this guy um, started out, started cooking, never went to cooking school, never worked in a restaurant. And he started cooking because he felt that he was, you know, uh, you know, at the time he was moving in from teenage years to adulthood. So he was like 18, 19 years old. And he felt like he was very heavy set. Um, you know, I didn't think he was that heavy set, but he was very heavy set in his mind. Uh, it kind of, um, uh, he suffered from a little bit of low self-esteem. His whole family, they were, he, you know, they were relatively normal weight, but he was just gaining weight a lot faster. And so he started cooking for himself because he, you know, he just felt that he just felt terrible. At him. He didn't like the trajectory of it and um, cooking healthy foods. And mm-hmm. because diet foods, he couldn't, you know, he said they taste like chalk. So he decided right. to cook for himself. And, you know, he went through a year of just cooking uh, food that was barely edible. But every once in a while, when he would run across something that actually tasted good, you know, he journaled this. You put him in a diary, you know, today. He's done 11 or 12,000 hours of live TV showing his cooking, healthy foods. He's authored uh, 12 books, you know, million, millions of copies, uh, bestsellers uh, all across the board. He's, you know, um, designed a, a menu for um, first class cabin menu for Cathay Pacific, Lufthansa, all these airlines. Wow. What are the chances of somebody just taking a passion like that and making the, the millions and millions of that he's made just because he was passionate about, you mm-hmm. know, just staying fit and healthy. You know, he's authored books like paleo diet book, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, you guys have seen all this. So when I say, and I can go on and on and about people, you know, photographers that's making millions. I mean, anything you have your heart set on something. I mean, I can make a business out of running if, if running is your passion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you really can. <laughs> So if I understand correctly, the basic process is you have to find something you really, really love so you don't mind the, the long hours in right. hard work. Mm-hmm. And you have to set uh, just a basic goal, like you said, $3,000 a month. Right. And that eventually transforms into something much, much larger. So you oh, absolutely. Some mm-hmm. money, but you don't have to shoot for $500 million at the start. It has to be passion and some money. Some yeah, way to I make mean, a profit. Right. So you do need to monetize it. That's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Now, money is not, um, it's not evil and money is, you know, uh, not great. It's not evil, but it is some part of this is necessary. You know, this is how yeah. we pay for things. So it's not like I'm completely blind sided to money, but the basic amount of money you need to run a business or start one and test and accelerate your business idea 
is a lot less than you think. Because, for example, you know, um, when I started my business, we didn't have internet. We didn't have um, even like we used to have 1-800 numbers and they used to cost you a lot of money. So in jewelry, uh, if you see movies like uh, everybody's in movies of jewelry stores, uh, you go to Tiffany's or any of these places, you've got the floor to safe ceilings, right? Like floor Mm -hmm. to ceiling safes that you open. Uh, they're usually bulletproof, fireproof, and all that. And um, and then you also need a, a very secure place. You had, you got several alarm systems that's running. Um, I didn't have money, so when I got my first inventory, okay, it may not be millions of dollars, but it's everything I had. So where do you store that? Okay, you know the, those safes, even the small ones that are not you know huge. I mean, they start out at like four or five thousand dollars a piece. Yeah. So, and then when you get it, where are you going to put it there? You know, where are you going to put it? Because you need a jeweler's insurance, all that. So I wasn't going to give up, you know, my passion for that. Because at that point I realized, oh, gee, there's a huge market for my product. All I have to do is show up and, you know, people are getting orders like crazy. And so I was not about to give it up, but then I wasn't going to go and get a loan for 10 grand just to store those pieces for a few days because that's, that's what I needed. Like, you know, I receive it and then ship it out. So, you know, I came up with an idea, you know, I wonder, because jewelry is not that large. I went to the bank and I just, uh, you know, rented the safe deposit boxes in the bank. Now, the safe deposit boxes in the bank are pretty, you know, the largest one is, it, it'll store, I mean, probably like a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff okay. uh, because jewelry is very small. Um, I rented it like an annual rental for a largest box. The largest box at B of A was $120 a year. Wow. So it got it down to $10 a month. Okay. Yeah. Now, it also saved me from having an office space because I ran my business from my second bedroom in a apart- rented apartment, which I wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I didn't want to have people coming with guns or something, you know, robbing me. Right. So, you know, yeah. I didn't want to have anything in there. So I didn't need, need rent. I didn't need, I'm sorry about this. I didn't need rent and I didn't need um, the safe um, Mm -hmm. at all. And I didn't need the jeweler's insurance. Okay. So I literally would pack the stuff, you know, I would go to the safe deposit box and I'd have them open it and I would literally just pack the stuff there for me to ship. So that's one, you know, you think about different ways you can problem solve. So, you know, just don't follow what other people do. Um, When I solicited, uh, you know, when I sent those 50 letters, a day. Typically at that time, the business was being done with, uh, you know, like very glossy, beautiful catalogs. And, yeah. you know, they used to have just hundreds of pages of catalogs. Well, catalogs cost a lot of money to print. I mean, at that time, it was somewhere between twenty-five dollars to $50,000 and you would print them every six months. And the other big problem is shipping them was like 10 bucks a piece. Well, I couldn't do that. I was not going to be able, I wasn't even going to be able to hire a photographer. So I got myself a Polaroid camera, a used Polaroid camera from a pawn shop. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that there used to be a big thing <laughs> at that time. And I would take pictures and I would send four, um, four pictures with the rendering, you know, like I would do the renderings too. And do you know, I did the four plus the cover letter. Okay. That all went out as one first class stamp. And I would tell them in my email, uh, in my letter, you know, these are fresh off the press, like they were so new, they didn't even make it to, you know, a catalog. And I've, you know, curated this collection for you and your customers only. 
And uh, I got a really good hit rate because it was so different. I mean, who does that? Yeah. <laughs> In those days, they had a catalog. After, they, they had like stacks of catalogs. But these Polaroid pictures were just four pictures and they would just come in there. And I would vary the pictures because I had more styles than four. So every week I was able to send them for nine cents. So again, if you think about, if you have the determination and you, you're really passionate about, you know, cause those four were like right on the money for a lot of time. So that's how I got Neiman Marcus and all these uh, stores. So I would say that, um, you know, think about outside the box options. Um, and you, you might find that you might be a lot more efficient. You know, you just have to have a pulse on, you know, the one thing I knew well, though, I understood the jewelry industry really well, what was you know happening outside of there externally, and also what the industry was selling, and how things were bought, how things were done. And if I'm going to have to do something differently than what other people do, because I didn't have money, I was going to find creative ways to make it very palatable. Uh, but but the being vulnerable, being honest, and just, you know, presenting your best. Um, you don't have to be perfect, but presenting your best at that time, you know, it goes a long ways. It really does. Yeah, right. And and we all have that. I mean, you know, we all have vulnerabilities. We all have authenticity. We all have our best that we can show. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, you were able to get some of these products on television, Mm-hmm. How did you get them on TV? So what happened was um, I was, my products were sold um, in the Neiman Marcus catalogs. I mean, I was, my products were featured at uh, many of the airlines in flight duty-free catalogs, um, Harrods, London. So HSN actually called me. HSN is one of the uh, biggest, uh, at the time, they were the largest um, TV network. It is now the second largest but okay. um, they contacted me and asked me if I would be interested in being on their channel. And um, initially, I really wasn't because the TV industry was in its embryo state in 1998. That's when I, you know, when uh, when I went on TV for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't specialize in jewelry. You know, they sold like uh, whatever they could. You know, dolls, uh, swords, antiques. You know, whatever. <laughs> And uh, by that point, my brand was uh, a really hot brand, um, you know, for jewelry. So I didn't really want to go on it. But by that point, I had distribution all over the world. I mean, literally, I had I was in Dubai, you know, Abu Dhabi, Bahrain, um, Tokyo, you know, South Korea, London, France, I mean, all over the place. So I was traveling quite a bit. My kids were getting a little bit older. And, um, it was getting a little exhausting. So I figured, you know, if I could make this TV thing work, I may be able to just do like once a month going from LA to Tampa and just do the same volume. So I gave right. it a try and, uh, it wasn't easy the first couple of years. I mean, we really had to, um, the network was very, very, um, eager and kind and professional. So we, we had a real great synergy we built this amazing brand um, on TV and I was on it for 19 years and 11 months or so, almost 12 years, um, almost 20 years. And then I tried retirement for about six months and it really wasn't, you know, it was fun for about six days. <laughs> and after right. that, I was uh, driving everybody nuts. So uh, luckily I uh, found a new home. So I'm in the, you know, competing channel. It's called uh, Shop HQ. So I'm still on okay. it every month. Is uh, Lori Grenier involved in one of those? Lori is with QVC. 
QVC. Okay, yeah, so she's on QVC. Now, QVC went out and bought HSN, so they are now the same company. They're sister okay. companies. But at the time, uh, she was on Shark Tank, um, you know, on HSN. So you, if you've seen the movie Joy, um, that's, uh, you know, Jennifer Lawrence played a, a woman named Joy. That Joy was on my channel. She's okay. actually a pretty good friend of mine. Okay. Yeah. So that's um, shopping channels are still happening. Oh yeah, it's a very big thing in uh, in in the U.S. and yeah, and I'm mm-hmm. on the the so the competing channel now to HS and QVC combined combined channel. Yeah. Okay, so if someone has a great product, mm-hmm. and they think it might be a good fit for one of these shopping networks. How do they go about that? Oh, you have to pitch it. There's a whole process of doing that. It. Yeah, you got to pitch it. Um, I mean. It's not easy to get anything on TV, but if you have the yeah. right product, obviously, um, you know, remember if you're trying to pitch something to TV, you, TV is a visual medium. So anything that's easily, you know, demonstrable, like um, if you're, you know, um, for example, things like perfumes, which you, you can't mm-hmm. demonstrate, you can only describe it. That doesn't right. work too well. But a lot of before and after, like if you can um, vacuum cleaners, for example, you know, if you can say, hey, um, you know, ours removes stains or whatever, and you can actually show the dramatic difference between the before and after, those things do really well. Um, If you can do, I mean, a lot of uh, beauty products do very well. I mean, I I can't say generally speaking certain categories do well. I would say that anything um, that can be easily demonstrable like your benefits of your product can be easily demonstrated visually visually then um you that product has a huge advantage Uh, however there have been some great products that um wasn't that easily demonstrable that did really well so it just depends i mean you really have to bring your marketing um game to the top Right. Now you've learned so many business skills mm-hmm. starting off going to department stores with your lookbook and now on TV for a couple of decades. Tell us what you've learned about negotiation and persuasion over these couple of decades. Yeah. So negotiations and persuasion, that is, wow, that's, I want to say, Luke, that is actually really, really good because can I tell you that that's the one thing I believe that none of the universities, um, none of your business courses really teach you because they we are taught that negotiations and persuasions, we need leave it to our lawyers. And that's the worst thing you could do for yourself, hire a lawyer to negotiate something for you. You can hire a lawyer to write down what you've already negotiated, but your your lawyer doesn't understand your business needs, um, you know, the dynamics of right. what the other side wants versus what you want. Uh, you don't want to pay somebody somewhere between five hundred to seven hundred dollars an hour to ruin your whole thing for you. So the the other thing is, the minute you lawyer up, the other side brings their lawyer up, and you know, two years later, you're still talking about point one. So, mm-hmm. what I would say is, um, when you go into persuasion, is very different than negotiating. I would say because you know, persuasion is you're trying to convince somebody something. So yeah. you would persuade your buyer that your company really needs this, right? You can mm-hmm. say, you know, I'm selling this line of shoes that are really comfortable. You know, it solves all the foot problems and yet it still has this incredible style. Um, if you're going to do that, 
And, and the buyer says, well, you know, can you prove that scientifically? Do you have any studies by UCLA or Harvard that says that your shoe, you know, whatever. So you, you somehow can, if you can somehow persuade her that, yeah. you know, this does all this stuff and, and that your company actually will benefit in terms of bottom line, that's mm-hmm. persuasion. And that's a little different set of skills. Uh, that's more of pointing out, you know, your features and benefits. Now, negotiating mm-hmm. Is when the company, when the buyer says, okay, well, great, Luke, I love your shoes and uh, let's talk pricing. Okay. Right. <laughs> and um, so this is where your negotiation starts. And so if you say for the, for this one pair of shoes, which we're going to start with one pair and that pair and you tell the buyer, you know, I need to get uh, 50 bucks for this. And the buyer says, well, I can't pay you 50 bucks because I see this retailing at no more than $75. And our company needs a good 65% margin. Yeah. So we're going to need to get it for something like, you know, $25 as opposed to, um, you know, whatever. Because now I also want you to pay for shipping. I want you to pay for, um, you know, any kind of a markdown in case it doesn't sell. And, and I want you to agree to uh, taking back stuff that doesn't sell um, so that we don't have to be sitting on dead inventory or we don't have to air only size five and lime green anymore. You know, if everything else sells, you can you take these back? So now you're sitting there going, okay, well, these shoes are costing me um, 25 bucks just to make it. How am I going to sell it to you for 25 to 30 bucks so that you can make, you know, 75 and by the way, if you're getting $75, I mean, if you're ba- ma- making 65% margin, shouldn't you be taking care of all the markdown stuff, you know, because you're a bigger company? <laughs> yeah. So this thing goes back and forth. And I think this is where your negotiate, you know, you have to know what I would say is when it comes to negotiations, make sure that you do your homework ahead of time. Right. When yes. I say homework ahead of time, meaning that if, um, you're going to, let's say, um, like you guys have Rogers Broadcasting up in Canada. If you're going right, to, yeah. you know, the, the shopping channel over there and um, you you have a pretty reasonable sense of them taking these pair of shoes with you, okay? They're saying, okay, well, these are so unique shoes and they fix everybody's problems, you know, we're, we're willing to try it. Mm-hmm. If you know that, you need to find out how is that buyer rewarded, a lot of times the buyers, remember, buyers are in there for themselves. So if the buyer is rewarded on revenue, then your negotiations are simple. Making sure that you give her a good price because when they're rewarded on revenue, they don't ask you for markdown money. They don't ask you for bottom line profits. There's a lot of things they don't ask for. Okay. It's great. But if your buyer is being uh, rewarded and her, her raise, her promotions, all of that stuff is being reviewed by bottom line profits – then she's going to want, you know, the margins is very important. She won't give up the margin. Right. And she won't give up, you know, the markdown money and all that other stuff. So do your homework there. And then the other thing you do is if you find out, for example, Rogers Broadcasting is, you know, becoming a socially just company. They're doing all these wonderful things about their customers and they have their goals. And if you can come in and say, you know, these shoes, by the way, you know, will – give uh, a dollar or whatever to, you know, um, kids with, you know, foot deformities or, you know, foot injuries. Um, and this will, you know, help children, um, you know, or everybody to have better posture, all this stuff. So again, when you know information that they're looking for, and they're looking for three different pairs of shoes from three different companies, they're more likely to go with you and negotiate better terms for you. Does that make sense? So do yes. your homework. Yes. And then the second thing is, 
remember, your buyer here is going to be your best friend. So it doesn't. If you don't get what what you want from your buyer, going over the top rarely results in a better result. Okay, right. because the buyer you want to work with her, even if the guy at top says, you know, that thing that this guy Luke brought was so good, and you just sold her screwed up or whatever. That buyer is going to make sure that you pay a price. Make sure yeah. that she doesn't look stupid. Okay, right. so you want to make sure that your buyer is your friend. And so what you, you know, first thing, the first phase one, as far as I'm concerned, is I usually have like a whole bunch of floaters. I, you know, I'll ask quite, well, you know, I'm kind of new with this and I'm not sure, you know, um, how to go about doing this. But so what you want from, from me, you know, you're about just broadcasting, you're a huge company and I'm sure you have all these rules and I'm sure you have all the things that you're, that are non-negotiable. So can you kind of guide me on this? Like, what can I do to make this, you know, kind of happen for the two of us? Because you'll be surprised how much stuff the buyer says, okay, well, our margins are absolutely non-negotiable. I have to get X percentage. Right. But we will give on, you know, blah, blah, blah. So what happens is you can structure your negotiation. So if you find out, for example, your buyer says, I want 65% and that's non-negotiable, yeah. Then what you could do is you can then say, well, you know, my shoes are costing me $25. I have to get whatever. But what if you did like, you know, buy one, get one free? Or what if you did, you know, um, there's other ways you can build a product. So again, do your homework and make sure that your buyer is your going to be always your friend and an advocate. Mm -hmm. And because that buyer is, you know, if he, she says, and then you say, okay, well, you know, she says, I don't care, Rook, just go make it for 25 bucks. I don't care if it's not as good as this, you know, yeah. what do I do? Then you say, you know, I'm sure that Rogers Broadcasting, as well as myself, I'm sure we have our reputations. You know, we want to give our, the, our customers absolutely the best. What, mm -hmm. what are the things, how can you guide me into, you know, Obviously, this product by itself doesn't make any money for you. It doesn't make any for me. But you love the concept of, of the shoe. How can we work together so that we can deliver? You'd be surprised what, you know, my whole business, that the whole, I would say about $300 million of the $500 million was as a result of negotiating great terms yeah. and having them, you know, and negotiating is like not easy. It's always tense, even mm -hmm. when, you know, but... Um, you never ever want to walk away thinking like you won. Right. You want to walk right. away thinking like they got away with murder because that's going to be the best thing for you at the end. Yeah. And like you said, you want to make them your friend. You don't want to create resentment by going around them yeah, or yeah. making them feel like never, you know, never they screwed up. Mm -hmm. That would be the worst thing you could do. So tell us about growing exponentially because when you started out, you're going like store to store. It's very mm -hmm. time yeah, consuming. Yeah. Right. So you, you can't work too much more than 15 hours. Right. So how do you, how do you increase those sales yeah. exponentially? Well, when I first started my company, I uh, made it a point to, so I, I had kind of like a, my personal mission statement, which was to work 20 to 25 hours a week. And I want to make 30, you know, $36,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And I thought I could do that because I was not going to need to go to all these, you know, stupid meetings, the rah-rah sessions, all the stuff, you know, corporate America, you know, and I wasn't commuting because I need, remember I started my company so I can spend more time with my family and do what I want to do. So it was important to me to set the boundaries in terms of time because I was going to make a huge sacrifice on my, on my income. Yeah. Um, so what happens is when you start growing, 
the fastest way to grow, and this is the way I recommend it, is to get a couple of large customers. So I did some consumer to consumer, business to consumer, and then I did business, you know, uh, business to business. When you do business to business, you, you know, you, the one account coming in. So let's say you have um, a thousand, you know, individual customers buying from you, thousand, you know, trunk show customers buying from you. Your margins are very high then because it's one to one. You know, there's no middleman there. So your right. margins are pretty high, but the cost of doing business is very high. You know, you have to go to, you know, each one. But when you get a business to business, you know, model, like, like the one we just showed you with Luke with shoes, right. your, your margins could be shrunken in half, but your volume will go up 10 times higher. So you might, you know, like a TV station, for example, like when I was uh, doing one-on-one, -on -one, I was lucky to sell a thousand pieces of jewelry um, in, in a season, which would be like over four months. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was on TV on HSN, there were many months where I went through a hundred thousand pieces of jewelry in a month. Okay. So now when, when you get a business client, you're able to buy in economies of scale. So the things that I used to, like a turquoise that I used to buy for like, you know, 40, 50 bucks a carat. Um, by the time I was doing TV and all that, I was able to just, you know, when a miner would call me and say, you know, we're, you know, coming from such and such mine in Canada and, you know, we discovered this new turquoise. And I would say, you know, how many carrots are we talking about? And he'll say, oh, 150,000 carrots. And I'll say, I'll buy them all. Okay. But I'll wow. buy them at like four bucks a carrot. I see. So what happens is, A, in that case, your costs have gone down significantly. Yep. Number two, since you bought the whole mine, there's no, there's no competition for that material, right? You are mm -hmm. basically controlling the entire market globally. Right. So you then are controlling the entry to, you know, barrier to entry right there, plus you're able to pretty much set your margin. So you then start to, so I have this model, which is in my business, I've elevated the customer experience, I've innovated, and then you've dominated. So when you get to that point, that's when you grow exponentially. That makes sense. Totally makes sense. In the uh, late 80s when you started, mm -hmm. would you say it was much less common for female entrepreneurs to do what you did uh, than it is today? Is oh, it God. today for, for uh, young women to for start sure. a business yeah. than it was? I mean, I, I mean, in 89, I would show up to a business meeting and I can tell you, I can't tell you how many times I look like a whole other species of person because, because like, you know, people didn't even know how to treat me or how to address me or how to do business with me, whether or not wow. they, they, you know, take me seriously or not, you know, and it wasn't just the business world. I mean, I'd get on, uh, because I used to fly a lot. Um, I would always get upgraded to first class. And when yeah. I'm sitting there, people would ask me, Oh, so what does your daddy do? And I'm like, I don't oh my know. God. My father was dead. You know, I mean, I don't know. Or what does your husband do? I don't know. You know, go ask him. But um, it was, you know, in 89, um, you know, that was one of my other problems is when I negotiated, people just didn't know how to negotiate with me. And frankly, I got underestimated a lot and because because I was small, um, you know, I was very small, petite sized anyway. Plus, yeah. you know, I looked like I was a lot younger than I was, you know, it's kind of Asian woman thing. And, um, and I was really naive. I was deer in headlights. 
So, and I would tell people I have like no money. I have no money and I don't know how many I can sell. So these are the types of things in that, in those days, if you remember the eighties, the, the, I would say that's the decade of the excess, um, that everybody talked like they were, they were movers and shakers. Nobody ever went around and told everybody I don't have any money. So Mm -hmm. they just didn't know how to deal with me. And, um, I think what happened was like, I just kind of made a business out of being underestimated. So, you know, when Mm. people would say, oh, no, that's not true. You know, you can sell 10,000 pieces. And I say, you really think so? And they're like, absolutely. And I would say, well, I don't know. I don't think we can sell 10,000. I think maybe, you know, we're talking my product. I would say, we're lucky if we can sell 3,000. And goes, no, no, no. I asked absolutely sure. I'm sure you can sell 10,000. I'm like, "Mm, show me. And then he would he would go pull all these people and make sure that 10,000 pieces happened. Wow. Just because they were egotistical, you know? So yes. I kind of made a business out of that, which is, you know. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, it's um I love that story that reminds me of my dad and the times of my life I've been most successful mm-hmm. was I was absorbing and learning. Right. And people were kind of underestimating me a bit. Yeah, so. being underestimated is a good thing. I mean, I always tell being dumb is the be- you know, smartest thing you could yeah. do and I always was the dumbest person in the room, right? you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it's, you know, I've heard it said that actually the smartest person is the one that talks the least and asks the most questions. Right? Yeah. You know, I absorbing everything. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in a room typically, I mean, this happened at HSN even like years ago, we had a, a CEO and I mean, this conference table was just huge. They, I, I don't even know if they make t- tables that big. But it was all male and they were, you know, going around the room about all the things they're doing and everything. And I would just say, so, you know, I'm a little bit confused. And I would say, so what you're saying is, you know, you really think that we should be doing, you know, you know, sometimes I would say, so, you know, how is it that, you know, they would tell me, you know, we want something new, 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 like our customers thrive on new. And, Mm. you know, we love your brand because you're so, you know, you're one of the few people that can design new things all the time. So we want like 30, you know, designs that are new, new, new all the time. And then you go around the room and then when he, when they got to write the orders, they would say, well, I love this. I love this. You know, it's so new. We love that. And uh, so, but I want, I want some history on this. Okay. Before I write okay. the million dollar order. So I'm like, well, I'm a little bit confused because if you were, if you want something really new, how, how would I go about getting history on something like that? Right. I would just say, like, I wouldn't say, like, you're stupid, but I would say, like, how, could you, like, is there a way to get history on something, like, before it happens? Because I'm not sure. Because if you want something with history, you know, I mean, I got all the history, like, right here in my briefcase. And so, you know, like, you can place an order on those, like, that have history. Or yes. if you want something new, these are it. But I, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure, like, how I can give you the history and the new. Like, do you want them in the yeah. same place? Like, so I would just play real dumb. Like I'm, you know, trying to help you here. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it sounds like a very humble, uh, genuine question. Well, it time. is because sometimes like they don't really hear what they're saying. You know, like sometimes, yeah. you know, they're even some of the really egotistical people, when you get to know them, they're not egotistical necessarily. Some, some of them are, but a lot of them they're insecure about their position. They're insecure about, you know, if I'm going to get fired or whatever. So they feel like they always have to kind of exert their authority. 
And the way they do that is by, you know, kind of being um, a little bit more, they have to let people know they're in charge yes, and um, that they know what they're doing so that they're not like, you know, previ- like sort of predators, peop- you know, younger people coming up, taking their jobs or whatever. So I understand it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the one thing, the one thing I would say is like whenever you get screwed over, like we went over some of the mistakes I've made. I try never, ever to focus on that negativity. You know, I think, okay, well, I have a choice now. I can either hate them. Um, I can talk bad about them. I can make sure that nobody else ever experiences this sleaze bag. Or yeah. I could just choose to make sure that it doesn't happen to me again. And I'm going to try to like pretty much figure out what led me to this. Like, you know, like why was I so vulnerable? Like, why was I so gullible? Like, you know, what can I do now so it doesn't happen again? So, you know, yeah. and I don't even have to let people know like what you did to me is wrong. I don't even do that because, um, you know, it'll just take care of itself. So you just That's have right. to keep, you know, for, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have so many things to worry about. The last thing you want to worry about is a guy who screwed you over. Like seriously, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. just move on. That's so. an energy drain and a time waster, mental time waster. Yeah, that's for sure. To take care of. Yeah, for sure. So the last question I want to ask you: I have two daughters and two stepdaughters between ten and eighteen. You They're got young. four girls. Four girls. How lucky yeah. are you? I'm very, very lucky. Yes. But I'm also nervous. I want to be able to um, teach them and give them inspiration and, and courage. So what advice can I tell them, Victoria Wick said, about female empowerment and about their future? Well, um, I would say embrace your embrace everything you have. Embrace your femininity because um, I personally, and I'm, I'm not a... Um, I would say this may not be a politically correct thing, but I, I'm gonna, this is what I believe, so I'm going to say it, which is I just think that females are much more uh, DNA-coded to be nurturing, looking mm-hmm. for uh, more of a, a win-win situation. You know, if you go mm-hmm. to a meeting that's led by a female leader, true leader with a lot of authority, you rarely see you know her walking away with winner-takes-all kind of an option. Yeah. Um, so I think that all of the things that God gave us as females um, allows us to multitask, allows us to have compassion for multiple people at the same time, multiple projects. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, don't let anybody in the room, female or male, to let you know um, who, you know, how you can be better. I mean, you know your body, you know your mind. And it's an amazing thing. You know, you, you have all the power. Like, I went from zero to $500 million with no money, no mentors, no expertise. And I would say that it's too bad I didn't have mentors because back those days, they didn't have females that were very successful before me that I knew of. But, you know, today I would say, you know, just stick together. Um, No, you know, like in this day and age right now, there is a lot of compare and compete among women. And I would say, stop that, you know, um, and if you witness that, just you be that collaborator, you be the person above, always take the high road. But more than anything, running a business, like building my business, it's 90% mental, 90% mm. mental. So, you know, just make sure you have, um, you have a strong core. Like, uh, you know, if somebody says something to, you know, women's intuition is something that's very powerful. Um, mm. 
a lot of things that differentiate a good businesswoman versus a great businesswoman have to do with words like I words, like inspiration, instinct, um, the innate sense of something happening and an intuition. You have all that and don't ever give it up for some data. Um, don't give it up for some trend. What you have within you is timeless and it's God given. It's you're going to be okay. No matter what happens. Yeah. Temporarily. Very powerful. Very yeah. powerful. Victoria, this was a great conversation. I learned a lot. And, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. And um, if you guys listening want to, um, you know, I have a, a great thing that I'm doing right now. It's called, um, if you're a small business person, um, the number one reason, because I'm right now working in my legacy phase where I'm trying to help as many people as I can. Nice. And you started a question, you started this interview with the question about, you yes. know, how do I know if my hobby is worth money? Um, I am on a mission to create 1 million millionaires with all their hobbies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, because I do believe everyone's hobby is worth a million dollars. And um, so what I found out was that the number one reason why small businesses go out of business, uh, male or female, is they don't get visible. So, you know, you have this wonderful business, you, you have a wonderful service, and you've got all this, you know, excitement and enthusiasm going, but nobody knows who you are. Nobody knows where right. you are. And so I am doing a free step webinar at the end of this month. Uh, and even if you can't make it, you know, I'll have something uploaded later. And it's, it, it teaches you how to get visible, how to get free PR, and how to exert your expert authority. Uh, and it's designed specifically for small businesses, you know, with less than 50 people. So, you know, that's something worth listening to. And, um, you know, hopefully I can help a lot of people. That would be great. Please send me the link. I'll yeah. put it in the show notes. And um, could you tell us briefly about your website, Million Dollar Hobbies? Yeah. So, I, yeah, I have a Million Dollar Hobbies podcast, which um, mm -hmm. it's a half and half. It's half guested, half um, lessons from me to you directly. So okay. you can check out that one. And then I wrote a book called Million Dollar Hobbies, which is going through like a second, third uh, phase of revisions right now. Mm -hmm. uh, I originally decided to self-publish it, and then I got a publisher who wants to pay me some advance money to do that. So I figured I'll just go ahead and suck it up and revise it, you know. So I'm doing right. that. And uh, if you go to victoriawick.com, uh, you will find all the resources. I am just I just revised my, you know, like updated my website, but you will have a lot of free um, resources, uh, videos on, and there are, uh, most of my videos are very short, like, uh, three to four minutes. Cause I don't believe in those really lengthy stuff. Um, how to get visible, how to, you know, create a, a situation where you're going to get covered at least by your local, um, TV people. So mm -hmm. yeah, all those things are going to be there. So victoriawick.com it's W I E C K.com. And, uh, you'll find all that information there. Fantastic. Thanks again, Victoria. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Newtown Big Dreams podcast with your host, Luke Menkes, and his authentic guests. And we love our listeners and hope you subscribe now to learn more about the amazing journeys of our incredible guests who relocated to find a new town, Big Dreams. And remember, make your dreams big. <laughs>